I'm Rachel Perkins, and you're listening to the Nordic Nation podcast from Faster Skier. In this episode, we have Jim Galanis to discuss some guiding training principles for master's athletes. If you enjoy the endurance athlete lifestyle or are juggling a career and family, but still enjoy trying to get fitter and faster in this fickle sport, this interview has plenty of exercise physiology insight to chew on. While Jim may need no introduction, he is a three-time Olympian. First in the 1976 Innsbruck Olympics, where he competed as a Nordic combined athlete, then again in the 1980 Lake Placid Games and the 1984 Sarajevo Games competing in cross country. After retiring from his athletic career, he spent six years as a coach of the national team, followed by a few years with the program at Stratton Mountain School. He then moved to Anchorage to start and coach the now thriving APU program. Originally from Brattleboro, Vermont, Jim now lives in Frisco, Colorado, where he coaches online and in-person through his business, Epoch Training. Before we jump in, this episode is brought to you by the Alberta World Cup. To all Masters skiers out there, the Rocky Mountains of Canada and the Masters World Cup 2022 are calling. This coming March, Masters skiers from around the world will come together in Canmore, Alberta to celebrate a shared passion for cross-country skiing. This event will be a great opportunity to race in Canmore at the world-renowned Canmore Nordic Center Provincial Park. Go to mwc2022.com for details. There you can find COVID plan information and airline and rental car promotions. If you register before December 31st, you'll also get a free pair of commemorative socks. Back to the episode, here's our conversation with Jim. So as we get into your own history and, and background in skiing and, and sports science more generally, um, I want to say for those who might not know much about your background, um, I think this alone could kind of fill hours worth of discussion. Um, and you did a, a really in-depth um, and interesting interview with Ian Harvey on his podcast um, yep. in, in January or so this year. Um, which I really enjoyed. And you guys really dug into just the history in terms of your own experience as an athlete. And um, I was really fascinated by just thinking about kind of in the context of what else was happening at the, in the world at that time. Um, and um, just the evolution of the sport um, in terms of being a professional sport in the U.S. So um, for people that are interested, I want to just point point them in that direction for that more um, kind of historical context. but um, Maybe in, in the shorter version, can you introduce yourself and talk about your background as both an athlete and a coach? Yeah, um, yeah, I'll, g- I'll give you a thumbnail thumbnail overview. I, I grew up in southern Vermont. You know, we, obviously we started um, back in the '60s and '70s when when I was growing up. It was, you know, we had fairly typical winters. It's not like it is today, where it's it's kind of a roll of the dice whether we have good winners or not back there. But we, we were fortunate and we had kind of two two avenues. We had a local, in Brattleboro, we had a local um, Nordic program, both cross-country skiing and ski jumping that, that we grew up with. And then, you know, seven miles up the road, we had John Caldwell um, in, the, in the Putney School program. And John was the national team coach at that point in time as well. You know, so we had these 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 opportunities that were, I think, pretty pretty extraordinary in the U.S. at that time. And so, over the years, you know, I I, I skied through the the local 
junior Olympic qualifiers and all that, those junior kind of races that we had a lot of back then and uh, just progressed through the ranks in 1974. I made um, my first world championship team, so I was uh, 18 years old then and skiing Nordic combined and I skied Nordic combined uh, for the U.S. ski team and internationally through the 1978 season, then I switched to just skiing cross country. And I skied cross country for the ski team for about, I don't know, 10 or 12 years. So I switched in 78 and skied through, uh, not not 88, so I skied through 86 or so uh, on the World Cup and in um, Lake Placid and um, Sarajevo Olympics as cross country skier. And in 1976, I was a Nordic combined skier in the Innsbruck Olympics. Um, so I, I think I was about 30 years old when I retired uh, from competitive skiing and kind of went into coaching and was a regional coach for the U.S. ski team for, I can't remember, five or six years. And I, I moved to Park City and worked for the ski team based out of Park City for two or three years. And, then uh, moved on to uh, work under Sferi Caldwell, who was who just taken on the role of headmaster at Stratton Mountain School, and I worked there for four years, I believe. And then <clears throat> at that, after that, I went back up to Alaska, where I had lived previously. Uh, during my competitive career, I moved up to Alaska in 1980 or so, and. Um, so I, I lived there probably eight, eight to ten years before moving out and to the ski team in Stratton Mountain School. But after I got done with um, Stratton Mountain School, I went back up, and that's when we founded the what we founded initially as the Gold 2002 program. Um, and after I don't know a couple of years of working there, building these programs, I merged it with the APU Alaska Pacific University program. Um, that was my last real kind of team, team coaching program, coaching gig, and since then I've just been coaching individuals, um, kind of online or in the local communities wherever I've been living. And how did you end up in Frisco? Um, my partner Joyce. Had, got a job here <laughs> and uh, I was I was working back in Stowe, Vermont at that time and uh, we had we had previously lived in Sun Valley and um, so we we'd moved around a bunch with through her work so um, this just seemed like a good place to be for a while yeah and thinking back to your time as an athlete um, what what did your training look like at that point in terms of um, what were maybe some of the training principles that you followed that would still hold up today and what would maybe be considered kind of outdated when it comes to... Um, you know, I, what we thought we were doing um, wasn't all that different than, than um, what I think athletes are doing today. I mean, I, I think any... Any any limitations we had really came down to implementation. I mean, we were we were maybe doing a little bit more bike riding than athletes are today, um, 
we did a ton of roller skiing and roller ski double pole in particular. Um, you know, we did the typical, you know, at least one to two hard workouts every week and the rest was distance training. Um, some athletes did some strength work, but we really were not in tune with that at that point in time. But, you know, otherwise, you know, outside of the implementation, it was, it was pretty, pretty similar. Would you say in terms of like load and kind of that, that more is better or um, any of those types of principles? Yeah, were, yeah were particularly yeah. for me, you know, I, 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 as an athlete, I never had, well, the coaching wasn't as sophisticated by any means, but I never had the confidence um, even even if the coaches were to to express it to go easy enough in the distance training and and you can pile along a lot of hard distance training over two or three months and and early in the season and have some great races but it's it's just not sustainable because you're just you, you're getting over overloaded in, in the intensity of the training um, that was always my big problem I would typically be really good in November and December and then January, February, maybe not so good. And then maybe in March again, I would surface again. In terms of some of the key principles you rely on with coaching, um, kind of the same question. Has has that changed over the decades that you've been coaching or do you feel like a lot of it has stayed uh kind of similar in terms of how you're how you're framing your training and no, working with athletes. I've changed a lot in particular in the last decade and how I look at things and um yeah, I mean this is kind of could be an open ended two or three hour discussion, but I I think um we're we're certainly more aware of the importance of recovery. Um Strength training is much more more important and valued now, and I, I think just managing managing the training loads so that um, you know the distance training, the you know seventy to eighty percent of your your training that's just easy distance is in fact easy distance and building the right uh, metabolic pathways there. Um, but I, I think in terms of, you know, we used to do real exaggerated periodizations. We might start the year in May with 50 to 60 hours, and, and by November we were at 100 or 120 hours. I think th that's another area. There's there's no need to have those drastic changes in volume and kind of being at a, high, a, a higher level overall through the whole training years seems to be the norm now. Um, I want to ask how you became interested in, in physiology and exercise science in the first place. Um, in a, a piece Zach Caldwell wrote about you in the in um, Cross Country Skier magazine, he describes you as kind of a, a lifelong learner. And um, specifically, you said that you have a, a massive appetite for new information. Um, what has your evolution as as a student of cross country skiing and and sports science more broadly looked like? You know, when I when I retired, um, 
Jim's Dr. Jim Stray Gunderson, who's in Park City these days, who's who had a lab down in the University of Texas Southwestern in Dallas. He was working for the ski team and doing a lot of testing, and he went on to work for Olympia Topin in 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 Oslo and the Norwegian Ski Federation. Um, brilliant sports science guy, and you know we were through the later stages of my my own skiing career and then as I moved into coaching we spent a lot of time still even then you know so this is what 30 some odd years ago trying to answer the same questions now how do we measure training load how do we measure recovery and adaptation of that load and um, kind of age-old questions that were we're, we're better at answering now, but we're still not 100% of the way there. But I spent a lot of time down in Dallas and kind of on spring breaks and stuff with, with Jim in the lab and a lot of time communicating and, and, and learning from him. And, and um, you know, I have multiple friends now that are brilliant sports science guys that I talk to frequently and try to learn from and, and, and expand um, what we're thinking about and uh, yeah I mean I think the, the 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 body of research that's that's come out of the sports science world in the last 10 years is is probably better research than we saw in the previous 30 or 40 years um, so I'm, I'm reading new stuff pretty much every day or at least every couple of days I'm reading a couple of research papers or theses or something yeah is there anything right now that you're really interested in from that um i mean i think because i'm coaching in a bunch of different avenues i'm coaching skiers i'm coaching some runners i'm coaching some sort of athletes uh and i'm coaching some mountain bikers so, um you know the big the the big thing I I believe and we're working on and it goes back to the the comment I made about you know people we used to train at 50 hours in May and 100 120 in in November and then taper through the race season and think that you know after we put these massive loads on our body that that um, we can all of a sudden taper for a couple of weeks and start performing well and I never had that scenario worked for me and we we carried that into our early coaching years and I can say it just I don't think it worked and I think we we chronically had a lot of lot of people yeah people are going to hammer on me a little bit for it but we we have a massive amount of overtraining occurring and and, and my definition is a little bit different than than kind of the sports science overtraining because I think that definition is dated and and by the time you reach that definition, you're three to six months into an overtrained state, and it's all over for a long time at that point. Um, so that that that's where I'm doing a lot of work is is thinking and reading and and talking to some of these experts about you know the training loads, how much load, how much volume do we need, how much intensity of training do we need to to keep improving fitness and building um, and trying to answer those questions for each individual athlete. Yeah. So more of a, more of a focus on kind of the, the adaptation itself versus the yeah, load if, that is required. 
the the way I think about it is, if if you if you if you think about what is the definition of training? What are we trying to accomplish? Training is trying to build and improve. You know, physical training is trying to build and improve skills and capacities. Um, and I think too often we get in this trap where we we think we can train hard, train hard, train hard, train hard, and in the in the old model and i i don't know maybe maybe there's a lot of coaches out there not using that old model anymore but i i believe in more of a model of continual building of fitness or continual continual improvement and and people struggle with that concept too because i think about it over you know maybe two weeks or three weeks every every one of those periods we go through of training we ought to we ought to be able to measure something and say we've improved our fitness and and in my evolved logic that's that's what i feel the training process should elicit is improvements every two or three or four weeks or whatever the period is i haven't really completely identified it but it, it seems to me to be in that range from the athletes i'm working with now um, on the Facebook page for your coaching business, you, um, you wrote, in my view, coaching is a process much like training where we are learning and getting better every day. Continual improvement is my mantra, both coach and athlete. I almost never recognize the athletes I coach because it is their process to own and a journey we are navigating together. Many coaches and armchair coaches criticize this concept. My response is it works on a daily basis. Um, I think this is kind of what you were, were just speaking to, um, but I'd love if you could say a little bit more in terms of that that coach-athlete relationship and how you apply some of this in your coaching philosophy. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I generally believe I follow the same kind of principles um, overall in all my coaching, whether I'm coaching a speed skater or a skier or a mountain bike racer or a road bike or... I mean, the principles are basically the same, but, you know, we, we, for, for a decade or maybe even 12 years now, I haven't really, we, we always talked about hours training in terms of hours and volume or miles run or, or whatever. And this is, this goes back to the early to mid eighties when I first started having conversations with, with, with Dr. Strait Anderson is, is the, we both came to the conclusion at similar times that an hour of training as a, as a metric, as a measure is, is absolutely meaningless because you could do an hour hard and it has one effect or you could do an hour easy and it has an entirely different effect. And that's, that's the way we were looking at training. So now over the years, there's, there's been more, sophisticated options for starting to look at actual training loads and that's that's the way I'm looking at it now because if, if an athlete goes out and they kind of go off the res a little bit and go out with the with with the girls or the boys and do a hard mountain bike ride or something um, I can I can look at my software and calculate the training load and go okay you did you did a load of 300 today and your load for the week was supposed to be 800 and the other days we need to adjust and, and modify things a little bit so that so that we're not overdoing it um 
everything. So I think that's 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 been my my big evolution. I mean, most of the time when my athletes ask me how much how much volume of training am I doing, I have I have to go back and recalculate it because I don't I'm not even thinking in those terms anymore. And so that that's the first big big um, process or challenging process when I start working with an athlete is, you know, trying to estimate and figure out what what kind of training load they have done in the past that that they've been able to adapt to and, and then grow it slowly from there. Um, you know, I think in the past, I certainly know in, 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 in my coaching history and, and probably in a lot of the national programs, we got hung up on hours and we would say things like, if you want to be a top male skier, you got to train at least 750 hours a year. And, you know, young athletes and kids would go from three or 400 hours to six or 700 hours in, in a pretty short time frame. And I, I think clearly that approach didn't work. Um, I want to ask you about first beat. Um, can you explain what what that is um, for those who may not know, and maybe what drew you in in terms of their their systems and the science that they have? Yeah, um, yeah, glad to. Um, I don't. I, I used to work for first beat. I don't need longer, so I put that out there. So it's I'm not I'm not selling something here. Um, a friend of mine, Tina Hoffman. Her, her maiden name was Tina Contola. She was uh, a skier at the University of Alaska Anchorage from Finland. Um, when I was up in, living up in Alaska, and then she came back and was a coach at the University of Alaska for a couple, at least a couple years. She, she and her husband, who, who was an Alaskan, moved to Evascula, Finland, and they went to the University of Evascula, and she got a sports science degree there. And that that university in Finland is one of the eminent uh, sports science or, or research universities in the world in terms of, of of sports, particularly endurance sports research. And so then she went to work for a company for First Beat, and. Uh, yeah, she just called me up from Finland one day and said, Jim, I want you to look at the software, which was kind of rudimentary compared to what it is now. But um, yeah, this was, this was over a dozen years ago, and I started playing with it. And I go, this is, this is what we've been looking for. It isn't perfect, but it's, it's, it's a big step in the right direction, and they've continued to make steps. But it, it basically uses um, heart rate variability, heart rate... Uh, metrics to calculate physiological training stresses and training loads, and we also use it to um, do recovery testing on a daily basis. Um, and I, I still use it today. It's it's in it's in an updated platform from where from where I started with it, but. Um, Basically, I'm I'm looking every day at each athlete I work with. I'm looking at their their previous day's training loads, um, what the acute load looks like, which is the previous rolling seven days, and what the chronic load looks like, and how that which is the previous 28 days. And these things are updated every day, so it's kind of a rolling metric we get to look at, so we can monitor their overall training loads. To be sure that we're not we're not 
doing too much at any one time that, that we're not going to be able to adapt to and that we're just slowly building. Um, getting into heart rate training more in terms of uh, just this connection to uh, master's athletes and, and how um, master's athletes might, you know, uh, base their own training training or frame their own training. Um, there's a, a fair amount of information available in terms of how elites are training, whether that's, you know, looking at their Strava or um, articles, but it, it doesn't, it's, it doesn't necessarily seem like <clears throat> that that's uh, always directly applicable for the average master's athlete. Um, yep, no, absolutely so, right. And that's the same kind of mistake, you know, I think many of us as coaches made as we would hear from the Russians or the Finns or the Swedes, this is what we're doing. And we would try to figure out how to dumb, dumb that down to work for juniors and to work for, but masters or to work for anyone else. And, um, right. I, I think, I think it's really, yeah. Every stage of development yet yeah, they're, they're not, you know, junior skiers aren't, aren't many, elite skiers that you can just dumb down the program for and masters on the other hand are not are not just old elites elite athletes that you can dumb down the program for i think you need you need to look at each each level or tier of of athletes you're working with and 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 develop programs that make sense and for example with masters um i coach a fair number of masters still and and um you know, like I, I, I have them take a minimum of two days off a week, pretty much all the time. And yeah, maybe we, we only get a hard session in every week or eight to 10 days. It's, you know, may not be exactly one a week because they're, you know, depending on, on the age group or the, the master athlete, they may not be, um, able to adapt to more than that and I, I i'm i'm always trying stuff and i'm my own guinea pig and um this this summer spring and summer in particular i think um i did a lot of a lot more whether it was running or 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 biking i did a lot more two hour plus sessions and fewer days and for me, I felt that really, that elevated my fitness. So, I mean, we're just always, we always need to be thinking and looking for kind of better pathways to do it. And, and uh, I, I, you know, when I started the, the program and uh, before I started the program in Alaska, when I, my first stint of living in Alaska, I, I started a master's program and we'd get together and go ski you know, through, I can't remember what it was, three or four mornings a week and Russian Jack Springs in the dark with headlamps on. And and, and then when I went back and, and founded the APU program, we built the master's program into that program because I believed it was integral. And I, I, I think, I, I think in any sport development, whether we're talking about cycling or skiing or running, having a healthy and vibrant master's community-based participation is just so good for this. It, 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 it helps support the youth programs, but it's, it's just so good for the sports. 
just to have more people out there doing it. So I, I pay a lot of attention to what I'm doing with the masters because I, I really want them to get, get better, enjoy it, and uh, stay healthy and, 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 and mobile in their life as long as they can. Yeah. In terms of um, understanding heart rate and effort a little bit, um, you know, uh, you made a post this summer that, that said, regardless of pace or power, most training should be guided by heart rate. So the correct metabolic and muscular pathways are trained. Power or other external metrics should be used to measure improved fitness at a given intensity. Both internal heart uh, both internal heart rate and external metric power or speed are important in monitoring training, but only one heart rate tells us how our physiology is functioning. Um, so kind of speaking in broad strokes, what are some of the things that you see masters athletes tending to do incorrectly when it comes to understanding heart rate training? Um, well, I mean, almost, almost everyone I work with, the first thing I do is go, okay, all of your endurance base work has to be 75% of max heart rate or less. Um, cause that, that, that's, I mean, and this doesn't just apply to masters. This is, this is, this is, uh, I just did a piece on, or a couple pieces in the last few months on overtraining where, where I discuss this too with, with, with two different athlete profiles, but in two different ages, one was a kind of an older junior athlete and the other was a, a, a mid 20 something athlete, but everyone naturally I mean, it's, I think it's just our culture. They want to do the distance training too hard. And, and that's just the first correction. That is what, it's not the high intensity training. I don't believe that leads to overtraining. It's, it's, it's the day in and day out distance training that they do a little bit too hard. So that's, that's always the first big, big corrective action. And the the hard part to that is, for most of the people I've worked with, and and you know I don't know I've I've in the last five or six years in particular I've, I've picked up a lot of athletes where they've come to me and I started working with them that had been yeah overtrained whatever whatever definition you want to put on that they've been overtrained and so it's been a rehabilitation process in a lot of cases um, and and that's why you see a lot a lot of the, the social media posts I make are talking about that. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, in my view, it's a real problem. So, um, with, with masters and, and juniors in particular, um, they haven't had the, the proper aerobic development. So when they go out and go at 75% or less of max heart rate, they might have to walk up every hill if they're on a run. And, I mean, and it, 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 I, I tell them, I said, you know, this is, this is what I've seen works and it may take you three, four, five, even six months to get your metabolic pathways functioning or the aerobic metabolic pathways functioning at a high enough level. So you can go out and actually run at a good clip or ski at a good clip and still, you know, still stay in level one. That's, that's the biggest challenge because, um, people have tended to train too hard in the distance training day in and day out, and they haven't developed an effective uh, aerobic energy system. Sure. 
kind of like you need to check your ego a little bit to to do the training correctly and well, yeah, commit it's, to the it's, process. It's hard because because of, of of our culture, you know, we're we're brought up to think we got to work hard and train hard and do everything hard and to get the benefit from it. And we need to feel trashed after every workout. And I I think yeah, I'm 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 gen- over generalizing here because. I think I read more and more every day and I'm just pleased. I see so many coaches talking about the right sorts of things now. And that's, that's a big change. I believe in the last five to 10 years. And it's, it's not so, it's not so much an ego driven thing. It's, 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 it's a psychological block where they just feel like if I'm not going out there and pushing it moderately hard or hard, I'm not getting any training benefit. In, in terms of dialing in appropriate zones, um, and maybe particularly for that, that distance training, um, there's estimations that are, you know, I see 220 minus your age for your max heart rate and 180 minus your age for that sort of more threshold intensity. Um, but there's a lot of individual variation. So do you have any recommendations in terms of um, for somebody who, who has a, a, the ability to, to dial in their heart rate but doesn't really understand what those zones are? Yeah, um, it's <laughs> yeah. Short of going to a lab and doing a full-blown physiological test, which which is accurate for that day, um, it's it's a little bit of a black magic scenario. Um, what I do is um, I do a six minute test fundamentally, which the research over the years has indicated that, that six minutes, you know, a a full intensity, full effort, six minute test is associated with 100% of max VO2. That's, that's the duration and the intensity that's going to elicit max VO2. So I use a six-minute test, whether it's roller skiing or running or, or athletes on a bike or whatever it is, and I average understanding that over the first minute or two, the heart rate's not going to catch up. I, I typically average the last three minutes of the three or four minutes of the, the six-minute test, and I say that is the top of zone four. That's our max VO2 top zone. That and I, I feel like it works pretty well. And then I just back down from there. But all all these models require or assuming estimates, right. you know, 75% of max heart rate. It's a lot of research or, or, or published articles would suggest that's, that's associated with about two millimoles of lactate. But for an individual, it could be associated with one up to three millimoles. I mean, there's, there's just these big variations. That's that's why I prefer to use just field tests um, that we can do periodically to just check in and make sure um, that, that we're training at the right intensities. Do you have a, any rules of thumb in terms of um, setting a, a distance heart rate for easy training? Yeah, I mean, I I I just use the the standard. So if if um, basically the the top end of 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 the 
I, I'd have to look at my spreadsheets now because I can't remember exactly. But the, the top end of my endurance training zone is about 25% in terms of percent of the six minute test. So it's, it's, it's 0.75 of that actually. So, and that's the top of my distance training zone. So hopefully most of the distance training is done under that. Right. Um, today, but I mean, otherwise I would estimate, I, I would just encourage people to estimate their, their max heart rate. If they do a 5k race or 10k race and their max heart rate is 175, they're, they're, their true max heart rate is, you know, at least five or 10 beats over that. Sure. And uh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not convinced any of these methods we use are, are, are super precise, but what I've seen comparing what I've learned from the six minute test and just assigning percentages down from that for the endurance training, it's, it's been damn close over the years and it's not more than a couple beats off ever and that's to me that's that's just close enough because when when i set a ceiling i'm i'm telling people okay 75 percent of your max heart rate is is the ceiling for your endurance work doesn't mean i want to have you there all the time if you're going for three hours you know, maybe you're at 60 or 65%. If, if you're going for an hour, maybe you're at that 75% level. It's, we gotta, we gotta create those, those disciplines within that. What about some of the guidelines in terms of, um, kind of the, the ratio of intensity? Um, so, you know, there's sort of an 80, 20 rule I see for, for the total number of sessions or maybe more like 90, 10 by minutes. Um, and I'm, I'm curious what you think in terms of how these ratios scale based on your, your total training volume. Um, so for someone who's training, you know, 500 hours a week versus, sorry, 500 hours a year, which is roughly 12 hours a week. Um, how does that differ for someone who, you know, only has four days a week when they can go out and train, or maybe that's five to eight hours a week where they're out training? Yeah. Um, you know that 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 body of work by Steven Seiler from yeah he's a Texan that lives in Norway I'm sure you're you're yep. familiar with him he's done he's done a tremendous amount of really good work in endurance sports um, over the last decade or so and um, you know before I try these things I I go back and look through old records and and what we've done in the past and you know. That the eighty twenty rule is is a pretty good one, and I I I I tend to stick with it. I've always said, and this I can go back thirty or forty years on this. I've always said the amount of hard training one can can adapt to or handle is related to how much how much total training they've done. Um, so I, I think in that regard, whether they've done. Um, you know whether they're doing 200 hours or or 400 hours or 500 hours, the 80-20 rule is still pretty close. You know I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get locked into exactly 80-20. It might be 70-30. It might be 90-10. Um, I, I mean it just depends on the time of the year and and the individual. But I think in in general, if you know if you're training for 
four times a week, um, five times a week. Um, you know, five times a week gets you one hard session a week, roughly. Sure. If you're training four times, so maybe it's one hard session every eight or nine days. And I, I tend to, to keep looking at it that way because I think that's where we see the best adaptations. If we, you know, if, if somebody's training 300 hours and they try to do two hard sessions a week, um, I'm willing to bet their performance profile isn't improving at all. Um, how about training peak power versus aerobic efficiency and or kind of um, race pace or race intensity work? Um, can you explain what peak power is and, and why that's an important thing to train for master's athletes? Um, I think it's important for everyone. And, sure. You know, I, I read some about this, but this is more kind of, of of my own theory that I've developed over the last 10 or 15 years in particular is I, I, and I, I really see it with some of the athletes I'm, I'm, I'm working on. We, we look at regularly look at this, this six minute, say, say for a bike rider, cause they're, they're using power and that's right. probably what that, that article was referencing. They do say they're doing 400 watts for six minute power. Um, their peak power might be 900 watts. So in a 20 second test, build up for five seconds, go full out for 10 seconds, try to hang on as long as you can, see what the peak power is. Um, and then I look at for the for the bike riders, I look at power at aerobic threshold. So for say for this athlete, it's 145. What I have seen is the the the, the consistency of improving peak power. Or if you're a runner or a skier, we could look at it as peak velocity. Is the more that improves, the six minute peak power or or, or velocity improves and the velocity at aerobic threshold, that 145 or whatever heart rate, it improves. There, there's a there's a push pull going on there, and I'm not sure what's pushing and which which is pulling, but I suspect that uh, that in, in in kind of my simplistic logic is it's the muscles that create the demand on the O2 system, and if you can't go faster, I don't care what your heart rate is, if you can't increase the power outputs of your muscle, you're not creating an increased oxygen demand on those muscles so that you're going to see the improvements in either aerobic capacity or velocity at, at VO2 max, which is, which is a key indicator of performance potential. So that, that's, that's where, what I've learned over the years. I, I think it's really critical in, in, in most periods of the year where I have athletes working, working on that kind of peak power stuff at least once a week, but probably more often than not two times a week. And does that look like uh, short, short duration, but high, high intensity efforts? Ma almost maximal efforts yep. for 15, 20 seconds, four to six repeats, three, four or five minutes in between. So each one is full out and we grow, start with one set of those and grow to two sets and maybe up to three sets. But I mean, that the, the 
the magnitude or the, the volume of the work you do with, with that isn't isn't as important as the quality of the work. And I, I just I fully believe that's 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 absolutely tied to to both our aerobic efficiency and our and our velocity at VO two max. Sure. Do you think that's something that um masters athletes might be missing in terms of including that type of training? Yeah, I mean, not for sure. No, I mean, because it's, it's if people think of it, you're only going 15 seconds. But if you do, if you do that workout right, it is really demanding. Yeah. And you know, I think most of us like to go out. I mean, I don't do enough of that, and I don't do enough interval work, and because I like to go out and ride my bike or ski or, or run or whatever I'm doing, and and just go for a long time and kind of go easy and enjoy it. So it's, 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 it's not, you know, if you're doing one hard interval session a week or two hard interval sessions a week and one or two speed sessions, that's, that's a lot of, a lot of hard, hard training. So things have to get spaced out a little bit, but I think in, in terms of masters, it's, it's, it's absolutely critical because I think one of the limitations for a lot of masters athletes is they don't know how, or they haven't trained the body to produce power efficiently. Sure. Um, and I think that's, that tends to be something you can lose more quickly with age too, right? That kind of oh, maximum, for sure. strength, strength and, and yep. strength and power are the, the big things that go away for sure. How about um, periodization in terms of maybe looking at your overall year for athletes who, um, you know, maybe, are, are involved in different sports. So maybe that's, you know, running an early fall marathon or a late summer gravel race or something like that. Um, in terms of rest periods between seasons. So if you want to, you know, have, have kind of a summer or fall training goal and also say race the Berkey or, or something like that, where it's kind of that later, uh, mid, mid to late winter ski marathon objective. Um, when, when those athletes are looking at their year overall, is there, um, some rest periods that you recommend adding in or any kind of considerations you, you I, want what, to make? What I typically, and, and, and I have a lot of people doing that in my, in my business. And, and what I typically do is I, 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 I plan the whole, year, whatever it is, eight months or a year, whatever they, they want to do and, out in terms of kind of a gradual, very gradual, very, very small increases in total training loads. And what ends up happening is as we transition, like, oh, we just got done, most people around here just get done mountain bike racing and running races and all this other stuff. Summer, summer competitions, you know, a month ago. Right. So the, uh, the only thing I do differently is, is I give them a week or two weeks pretty easy in between seasons and then then we just get right back on on track for kind of a gradual build up i think if 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 following the principles of training that i'm i'm using with most master athletes now if if we build recovery into the overall training so we have a recovery week every third or fourth week and we have recovery built into each week they're not they're they're always kind of 
at some level they're improving their fitness and their performance and they so they get to the end of the the race season they're not wrecked and they don't have to take a month break or something they just they can just change it up for a week or two or 10 days and and get back into it um in terms of aging as an athlete, uh, when it comes to, to skiers entering their 40s, 50s, 60s, beyond, um, you've, you've spoken to this a little bit in terms of just that recovery aspect, but are, are there any other philosophical shifts in training that someone should consider in terms of, you know, whether that's more focus on strength training, mobility, um, ratios of that intensity and endurance training i know that's a, a big topic but um yeah, what are some of the it, other it things you think about Rachel, but it's 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 uh, i'd say the biggest thing i try to do is is particularly as they age um maybe not the 40s and 50s but 60s and 70s i make sure there's a lot more strength training in there and, and over the last 18 months uh, we've been we've been playing with be strong blood flow restriction, which Dr. Jim Stray Gunderson developed. Um, that is a great strength training tool, particularly for for older athletes, because we don't need to manhandle heavy, very heavy loads, and you know um, they get the same strength development as as heavy loads without having to do heavy loads. And, um, so I encourage masters to do a lot more. Um, intensive strength and when I was at APU and we had our master's programs I mean I had guys 70 75 years old that um, I mean they couldn't run they could barely ski they couldn't hike they couldn't walk down hills and we went through a couple of years at least of really for, for some of these older athletes some really um, targeted maximal strength work and yeah, you have, you have to build up to it carefully and you have to be really smart about it. But it, 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 it fundamentally changed their, you know, not, on, not only their athletic potential and enjoyment, but the quality of their lives, their mobility improved, their, their, they could do activities like hiking and running downhill that they hadn't been able to do in years. And it was all a result of this, you know, the progressive loss of strength in the, in the muscles. Um, so I'm 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 a huge believer in that. I'm probably one of the first ski coaches in the country that's Nordic coaches anyhow that started to plug in kind of maximal strength training back when I was at Stratton Mountain School, and I just I just found it to be incredibly um, beneficial to performance. Right, and there's other benefits also in terms of bone density and yeah, that, yeah, yeah that side sure. of things too in terms of aging. So yeah. Um, one other question for you. So, you know, in, in today's world, um, even recreational athletes are, are able to collect kind of a, a pretty vast amount of data surrounding their training. Um, and, and you've got products like, you know, the Aura Ring or whoop, the Whoop Strap that are um, helping you look at heart rate variability as a recovery metric. Um, in terms of all this different data that a skier might be able to, to collect, um, what do you see as being important and what is less important? Um, what I, what I can consider important is 
metrics like HRV that can tell us about the recovery status, but you have to know what you're looking for there. Um, and then the metrics, the external and internal metrics I, I collect through first beat are the training load, uh, the epoch load, which is kind of the physiological stress of each workout. And it, if they're runners, pace speed that they were running at at a given intensity um, I the, the external metrics I collect are only primarily there for um, assessing improvement in their fitness um, I mean there's 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 as you said there's so much stuff I mean first beat has a, a, a 3d accelerometer in there in their heart rate monitor sensors now and so you can get movement load but which is a which is a great thing for team sports in particular but movement load has got to be yeah if you do speed training on the same gradual uphill or steep uphill every week you can use it to look at movement load and then you don't need to time it and you can i mean there's a lot of other metrics out there that are kind of interesting and nerdy but if if, if they don't tell me about how the athlete is performing in training and, and overall improvements, then I, I don't collect it. Um, some, of the, of some, some of these devices, um, you know, Aura is a pretty good company, and I think their data is pretty, pretty reliable. But the, kind of the, the, the jury's still out on a lot of these risks based infrared um, right. measurement heart rate measurement or HRV measurement devices because they're looking at a pulse which is like a wave in the ocean versus an EKG reading which we're getting from most of the um, strap strap and sensor heart rate monitors and obviously the EKG ones they can they can um, accurately measure heart rate variability with the with the uh, optical sensors there's a, there's a lot more room for error yeah and that, that so i don't use the optical at all i don't i don't want to question the data if it, if 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 you're not sure the data is accurate it's not worth collecting right i definitely noticed a, a pretty big difference between what my i have, I have a polar watch um, with an, uh, the optic sensor and if I don't have the heart rate strap, I get pretty much completely different data. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, yeah. So um, any other thoughts in terms of just master's training or, um, yeah, any, any of these questions that we got into? Uh, you know, I think, I think I, to me, there's a couple of big things is obviously we've talked and beat this one up quite a bit. The strength training for master's athletes, that's critical. Um I encourage them to look into BFR training because I think it's, it creates a much safer environment to do it. I think um, if anyone's really interested in improving performance, I, I think you, they need to they need to do four to five workouts a week that's accumulating six to eight hours of, of training time a week. That, that's kind of the, to me is the the minimum threshold. I mean, you can be healthy and well training less than that, but I think that's that's sort of the minimum threshold to start to see some metabolic and biological changes in terms of building fitness. 
and um, I think the, the kind of the last big one for me is I'd rather see him do, you know, four times two hours workouts a week to get eight hours than five or six workouts that were shorter in duration to get the same amount of time. I, I mean, the, the research on that issue isn't isn't conclusive one way or another, but it's it's kind of what I feel think particularly for the endurance base work. I think that getting into that 90 minute to two hour range um, creates the stress on the system to, to start to see some of these biological and, and metal, uh, metabolic changes. I don't, I don't know that the standard 45 minute to an hour basic endurance workout is, is accomplishing as much. Thanks for listening, and remember, if you're ready to test your fitness or just enjoy the experience of racing with Masters athletes from around the globe, check out the 2022 Masters World Cup in Canmore.